Hello and welcome to the podcast. We are back for another week and today we are talking about patriotism. I've been looking forward to recording this all week, finally getting a chance to sit down and do it. Uh, When I decided I wanted to, I felt like patriotism was one of those relevant topics that's going on in our culture. I did not anticipate what has unfolded in the last week or two. Um, many of you have watched on the news this vigorous debate about whether people should be standing or kneeling for the national anthem. And so this issue of patriotism has generated a lot of discussion, a lot of debate, a lot of opinions. And so as we dive into this, I know, um, when I preach this on Sunday, I acknowledge to our congregation that there are probably, we are probably divided in this room about this very opinion. And so I'm operating with that assumption that various people who are listening to this, we are divided on this. So as we go forward, we're not looking for my opinion, but we're actually all seeking the mind of Christ through all of this. So we are going to dive right into it. Patriotism is defined as having or expressing devotion to and vigorous support for one's country. And so when I think of devotion, when I think of support to one's country, I think of this sense of belonging. I think patriotism has a lot to do with our sense of belonging, where and who we belong to. It's this belonging to shared ideals, this belonging to a group of people. It's belonging to the organization of those people, belonging to the process those people take to organize themselves. And I would say in our day and age, we have a huge belonging issue in our day and age. Recently, I don't know if you saw this in the news, there uh, there was a story about Mark Zuckerberg, who is the CEO of Facebook. And he went around and he actually met with religious leaders, some church leaders. And uh, one of the things that he discovered, or at least he claimed he discovered, was through meeting with various people and these various church leaders, was that religious people are way more, um, they're, they're much more likely to give. They're much more likely to rally around causes. And so one of the 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 directions that Facebook is taking is they want to be the central hub where people gather together uh, to gather around causes that they believe in. Because I think what Facebook has discovered is that people, when they have a sense of belonging, when they have a sense of belonging to a group of people with a common purpose and a common goal, that there is this feeling that keeps them coming back. Right there, when we feel like we belong somewhere, when we have a sense of belonging, we keep coming back, and people coming back to Facebook is really good for their bottom line. Right, it's really good for developing, getting advertising dollars, and and all that stuff. Um, so, so I say that because what Facebook knows, and I think what we all know, is we have this desire to belong. We have this desire to belong. And so today we're going to look at a few scriptures and it has and when as we look at these texts, I want us to understand this sense of belonging um, that comes out of that. 
and we're going to see what Jesus and the early church, how they respond to this idea of belonging. So we're going to start in Luke 7, and then we're going to jump to Acts, and then eventually we'll get to Revelation. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There a centurion servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some elders of the Jews to him, asking him to come and heal his servant. When they came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this, because he loves our nation and has built our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. He was not far from the house when the centurion sent friends to him, uh, sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. That is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes, and that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Then the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. As we read this, there are multiple characters, and there, I don't know if you notice, but there are multiple titles associated with these characters. You have Jesus, you have the centurion, you have religious elders, and then you have servants. Let's start with the centurion. The centurion um, was a person of authority. A centurion commanded a hundred soldiers, and a legion consisted of 60 centurions. And so part of the Roman policy of the day was to have good relationships with the local population, even encouraging, you know, religious customs. And so this centurion, he was instrumental in helping the Jews build their synagogue, build their place of worship in their town. And and so the centurion related to his community in what was seen as a positive way. Now, we have to remember in Jesus' day, there were Jews who thought very differently about their relationship to Rome. There were some that kind of had the attitude is that we should play well with Rome because, look, they've given us this freedom to do this. We, um, we should be satisfied and happy with that. While there was another group who said, who retreated to the desert and said, you know, we just want to, we don't want to be under anybody's rule or authority. We want to be free to just practice however we wish. And then there was this other radical group who had visions of overthrowing the Romans and believed that Jesus's purpose of coming was overthrowing the Romans. And so in this story, you have the centurion, you have the centurion servants, you have these religious elders who are look favorably upon the centurion, and then you have Jesus. 
So Jesus is in the middle of this divided world, and these are the people who are kind of like, we like the centurion. He's done good for us, and so we will do good for him. And so, but what we also know is that all of these people in this story belong to somebody, right? These religious leaders belong to a a religious system. The centurion belongs to Rome. The servants belong to the centurion. And so in this story, the names and roles matter because they are about belonging. Who belongs to who? And yet Jesus kind of lives on the outside of these distinctions. We see multiple stories in the gospel um, where Jesus seems to be breaking up the religious assumptions of the people of his day. Um, and then in this story, I don't know if you caught this at the end, but Jesus drops this huge bomb at the end where he says, I've never seen faith like this in all of Israel. So here are these religious people who have been following the letter of the law to the T, who believe that they are the chosen ones, that they have a unique place in all of creation, all of the universe. And yet Jesus says about the faith of the centurion that is greater than any faith he has ever seen. Now at the center of this whole story, there is the servant who the centurion values and cares about who needs saving. And so at the center of this, I want us to see the place where Jesus is in the midst of this story, is Jesus is in the place to save life. Jesus is put in the position to save life. And so in the midst of all these moving parts, in the midst of all these roles, Jesus is put at the center of this man who needs his life saved. And it is because of the centurion and his faith that he is saved. Now, let's go on. We're going to move to Acts 10, and we're going to look at the story of another centurion. Um, This is the story of Cornelius. He's a centurion, and we're told that he is a faithful follower of God and has a vision that Peter is to come to his house. And so the story picks up that the next day, Peter, he's up on a rooftop and it says that he's hungry and he falls into a trance and he has this vision about all these Jewish customs and laws being broken. It involves eating things that Jews don't eat. And so right after he has this vision, the servants of Cornelius catch up to Peter to bring him to Cornelius. And Peter goes into the house of Cornelius, which would have been uh, uh, kind of frowned upon for uh, in Peter's day, given that he is a Jew. And so here's what Peter says in Acts chapter 10, verse 34. He's been brought to Cornelius's house says this, Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts from every nation the one who fears him and does what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee, after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power. 
and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. So in the midst of this, Peter does not ask Cornelius to give up his job as a centurion. Right? Isn't that interesting that that I think one of the, the things we think about in this story is that Peter, he's going to go to the centurion and tell the centurion that he has to give up something, that he has to give up what he does, that he has to realign himself with a certain ideal or realign himself with Judaism. Now, it says later on in the text that actually Peter, he baptizes him. And baptism in in their day is a symbol of this idea of identification, who you belong to. And so for them, it's this belonging to Jesus, that they now belong to Jesus. And so God is doing this thing with Cornelius, where Cornelius is coming to faith in the Lord and his whole household and the people under his influence are coming to know the Lord. Now, this is a problem for for the Jews because they've never seen the Spirit work in this way. And so now Peter is put in a position where he has to explain this to the believers. And so this picks up in Acts 11, verse 15. As I, and this is Peter talking, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them as he had come on us at the beginning. They remembered what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord, Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When they heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even to Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. See, their concern initially is that he is not Jewish, and they come to the conclusion that God is breaking boundaries. In this story, religious people and non-religious people have come to the same conclusion that it is Jesus who saves. Do you see that? Cornelius comes to the conclusion that it, there is life in Jesus, and the religious Jews of the time come to the conclusion that Jesus is the one who saves, that God is doing this new thing. So the problem with protests in our day and age is that they are about social change, but they are not about heart change. Do you see what's going on here in this story? It's about this change of the heart. It's about where life comes from, who gives life, who is the one that saves life. And in our day and age, we're all about protest and standing for things. Because even when we stand for the national anthem, we're protesting something, right? We're standing for something. Um, Protest is about standing for something or standing against something. And so the problem with protests in our day and age is that they are about social change, but they are not about the change of the heart. So even if the social change is good and maybe even biblical, it is void without Jesus. And so we as friends believe that Jesus changes hearts and minds. And we as the church, I mean Big C Church, have to return to the conviction and our evangelical emphasis that Jesus is the source of change and transformation. You see, my concern for us as the church is our temptation is to elevate patriotism or social change 
above Jesus. I was uh, reminded uh, a few months ago, I was talking to my mentor, and he reminded me of um, the scripture in Joshua. Uh, I was going through some some challenging things, and, and he reminded me, don't assume that God is on your side. If you, if you remember in, in the book of Joshua, Joshua, he's getting ready for battle, and this angel of the Lord appears to him, and he asks this question, whose side are you on? Because it's much easier to go into battle. It's much easier to go to war when you know that God is on your side. And the angel of the Lord says, I'm not on either side. I'm not on either side. And I think oftentimes we get wrapped up in this social change, this political change, this patriotism. And we assume because we align, we belong with this group, that Jesus is actually on our side. You know, what if the centurion came to the conclusion that he was fine right where he was? That God was with him on his side without Jesus? What if this religious community came to the conclusion that God was on their side, that God was only working in this way? But both came to the mutual conclusion that it is Jesus who brings life. Both had to sacrifice. Both had to give up something. Both had to abandon their post. They both arrived to the same place that Jesus is Lord over all of this. See, and I don't think our place of people of faith in our day and age should be to be more patriotic or to be more forceful for social change. But we are to proclaim that Jesus is Lord over all of it. Now, that's not to say that we are passive. That's not to say that we don't stand for anything. But I think it calls us to a life of relentless trust. Right? Doesn't it take a lot of trust to say that Jesus is Lord over this? That I don't control it? I can't change it? That it is the Holy Spirit's work? It's the Holy Spirit's work in us that changes us and transforms us? See, it is so much easier to think that if I just say the right words, if I just do the right thing, if I just protest the right thing, if I stand up to the right thing, that surely God will move through it. But actually, it takes a lot of trust in God, it takes a lot of trust in the movement of the Holy Spirit to say that Jesus is Lord over all of this. So the question then arises, are we allowing Jesus to be Lord over our patriotism? Are we allowing Jesus to be Lord over our appeal for social change? See, as the church, we want Jesus to be Lord over all of it. And I think this is a call for us as a church. Before I want somebody to be more patriotic or before I want someone to advocate for social change, I want to see Jesus be Lord of their life. We want to see Jesus be Lord of their life. And I think sometimes we think when we can just enact this change, when we can get somebody to stand for this or kneel for that, then 
we we have the sense of accomplishment. We say, yes, they now see it our way. We have the sense of victory. But how much harder is it for us as the church to ask that question, how is Jesus Lord over our life? How is Jesus Lord over my sense of patriotism? How is Jesus Lord over my sense of social change? Now, I think it's obvious that we have to move to this point is, is there a breaking point in all of this? Is there a breaking point when Jesus says, you have to be different? You have to change. Which brings us to the book of Revelation. Revelation 3, verse 17. This is a letter written by a pastor who is speaking, who who is writing down the words of Jesus. Jesus is speaking to this pastor and he's writing to these churches And this is the letter, part of a letter to the church of Laodicea. And he writes this, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my father on his throne. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In this text, there is this church that lives in the midst of an empire, and they are tempted to forget about Jesus. They are tempted to put their hope and their faith into other things. And what the author says is that when you give yourself over to these, that you are pitiful, you're poor, you're blind, and you're naked. See, I think sometimes when we give ourselves over to these other Ideas when we give ourselves over to these convictions that may or may not have anything to do with what Jesus is saying, that what Jesus is doing in the world. Sometimes I think we find ourselves in that place. We find ourselves shameful, naked, poor, and blind. What Jesus is inviting this church into is the one that says, Come to me. I am the one who gives you value. I am the one who covers your shame. I am the one who gives you victory. See, at some point in life, maybe like Peter and maybe like the centurion, we all have to answer this question. How is Jesus Lord over our life? I think in this story, we want to hear what the centurion does afterwards as a result, don't we? We we wanna we wanna see how how this all plays out and and maybe the reason why we don't find out in this story what happens with the centurion 
is because it would miss the whole point. The whole point is, are you putting your hope in Jesus? Are you putting your hope in your life in the hands of Jesus? Do we have this ruthless trust that Jesus is the source of life? That life comes from him alone. So while we live in this divided world, we live in this place that wants to pull us to belong in opposite directions. Maybe the question isn't, are we patriotic or are we sitting standing? But the question is, is how is Jesus Lord over our life right here and right now? And when we allow Jesus to be Lord over our life right here in the present, may that shape what we do right here and right now. So if you identify as a patriot, may Jesus be Lord over your life. If you identify with somebody who is working for social change, may Jesus be Lord over your life. If you find yourself pulled in the middle, may you say that Jesus is Lord over all of this. And may we seek the heart of God. And may we be found in him alone.